Amen, and good morning. I am excited uh, to get started in the Minor Prophets today. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We've got to cover a lot of history. We've got to cover the arc of the entire Old Testament in one sermon. And there's all sorts of fun things like what is a prophet and why are there no prophets anymore? And then there's a surprise twist at the end. I'm just excited about it. But I think I want to say this first. Um, there's so much, uh, you know, of course, happening in our world that probably weighs on our hearts a little bit. Um, I know so many of you have things happening in your life that weigh on your heart a little bit. And we sing a song like this about crying out to God. You know, I think one of the major lessons of the prophets is that we have a God who cries back to us. He is also crying out to us. And that's why these prophets kind of exist. Um, and I think we're going to be blown away with, despite the fact that they are so far removed from our world, it's just how relevant and potent their writings still are for our heart. So, excited to dive into it. Let's start uh, at the beginning. At the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What's fascinating about the book of Genesis is you will see in Genesis three focus changes uh, over the course of the entire book. So right at the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1, is about God interacting with all of reality. And he shapes and creates the reality that we inhabit, the whole entire universe. And then in verse 2, the focus shifts. And it starts to get focused in on the earth and God interacting with the earth. And from verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 of Genesis, it is the story of God interacting with the earth and with all of us humans who live upon it. Then in chapter 12 of Genesis, the focus shifts yet again. And it starts talking about this one man named Abram. And for the rest of the Old Testament, of course, his name becomes Abraham, but the story is God interacting with this man and his family, which eventually becomes as numerous as an entire nation. And with the exception of the book of Job, the Old Testament is just about God specifically interacting with this man's family that is eventually a nation. And it's fascinating because God starts by saying, listen, I want to walk with you. I'm going to make promises to you. We're going to enter into a covenant together. This idea that you're, like, you're going to be like my special people here on earth. And you know how the story goes. His family does grow. And eventually they relocate to Egypt. And they grow so fast that they become as numerous as a nation. Um, and they still kind of have this vague sense of we have this God. We're kind of the people of this God. And we have these ancestors in common. And it, there's some connection back there. But they didn't really understand religion, at least in the way that we would understand it. And at some point, Egypt puts them into forced labor and makes them slaves. And so they had a few bigger issues than figuring out what is the religion religious uh, life that we need to embrace, right? And into that moment, God says, I haven't forgotten about these people. I haven't forgotten about this family that's now as big as a nation. And I'm going to introduce or rather reintroduce myself to them. And so he brings a man named Moses into the picture and Moses leads them out of slavery and he leads them to this mountain in the middle of nowhere. And God's like, now is the moment. I talked to your forefathers about this, but now is the moment where I'm going to introduce myself to you people who are going to be special to me, my people. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, here's what the Bible records. At the foot of this mountain, it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him, 
from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. So here's the introduction from God to his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God says, these are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. We don't think about this with God a lot, but can you hear almost like the longing in those words? God's like, I've been waiting for this moment. Like, like that I could be the God of this unique people set apart and that we could have this thing together. It's like the dream of God from the beginning. And this was going to be the moment that God and these people start walking together once again. So they're all at this mountain. God's introducing himself. He says that thing. And then he shows up, like in the flesh, physically shows up. Here's what it says, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. It's pretty dramatic, right? God's like, finally. And if you know what happens next, the next thing that happens is he gives the people the Ten Commandments. Now, you and I have been familiar with the Ten Commandments probably most of our lives, uh, but we kind of take them for granted. The Ten Commandments were a revolutionary document in its day, because what the Ten Commandments did is they elevated every person in the nation to equal status under God. And so what God does is he takes this group of former slaves that's as big as a nation, and he says, listen, you all aren't going to be like all the other nations. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, and it's going to be me and every other human in the nation. And that's really what the Ten Commandments do. And you can hear kind of the threads of that that you could trace forward all the way to the U.S. Constitution. And we cut a few people out of that thing originally. But the idea of it was that everyone would be equal under God. And we would have these uh, like undeniable human rights. And there wouldn't be like the nations where there was like the powerful or the, the ruling classes who exploited and, and took advantage of the poor and the, the people with less power. God says, this is the dream that I would be the God of a people that could all hear from me, that, that would all be equal, where the law of love applied equally to every person in the nation. I mean, can you imagine? There was nothing like this on earth. Everything was kings and emperors and uh, humans who declared themselves God. And all, that's what all the kingdoms were. And God's like, no, we're going to do it differently where the flourishing of every single person matters. And I get to be everyone's God. It's beautiful. It was glorious. The dream of God announced at this mountain in the desert. But... If you know the story, 
You know, this is also the moment when the rug gets pulled out of the whole thing. Right after God gives the commandments, this is what happens. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God's come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And in that moment, because we humans are so fearful, we stepped back from the dream of God. That God could talk and all of us at once could hear him and interact with him. And the people of God were like, God, you are freaking us out. <laughs> like, just, you're really scary right now. I mean, look at you, God. Like, here's a guy, talk to him. He'd love to talk to you. He'll tell us what you said. Just, just don't talk to us. I don't know if you ever feel sorry for God. I think at times we should. I feel like it's hard to be God. Like this is one of those moments where you're just kind of heartbroken for him. You, like this excitement of I finally have this people. I'm announcing something to them that no one has ever seen on earth. And they're like, that's really scary. Can we do something else? <laughs> and you're kind of heartbroken for this God who wants to walk with these people. You know, but I think God knows what he's working with, right? <laughs> he is not easily deterred by our fear and our issues. Uh, and so he's like, okay, fine, have it your way. I will talk to Moses. He will tell you what I said. Is that okay? Does that freak you out? They're like, no, that's, that's what we would prefer. And so that's what they do. And Moses talks to God and basically writes down all of this stuff that becomes the building blocks of this new nation of Israel and the building blocks of their religion of worshiping the one true God. Years later, Moses is dying, um, or he's not dying yet, but he's about to die. And uh, he, he revisits, he calls all the people together. Um, uh, so Exodus, this is where this moment happens. Leviticus, Numbers, that's a lot of the stuff that Moses wrote down that he heard from God and he gave to the people. And then in Deuteronomy, he's like called the people together and he's like, I want to just give you some parting words before I go. And there's this moment where he calls back to Mount Sinai and specifically what they said about God, don't talk to us. It's in Deuteronomy 18 and uh, Moses says this, the nations you will dispossess Listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of God, of the Lord our God, nor see uh, this great fire anymore or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their, their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I've commanded him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So prophets, that's kind of the first five books of the Bible. I skipped a few parts, but that's the gist of it, right? 
you have this picture of like this God with this beautiful dream. Like it really is beautiful. It's compelling even today. And you have these people who are like, I, it just is too much. And so you have this God who says, okay, fine. I see how scared you are. I'll tell you what. We, I, I've invented this thing called prophets. Moses was like one of those. What if I just send people like that? Would you just listen to them? I'll talk to them. They'll tell you what I said. Is that okay? And they say, sure, let's do that. There's a great uh, doctrine that we all should know. It's called the Doctrine of Divine Accommodation. Uh, this was developed, or it, it's always been around, but the idea was really named by St. Gregory in the 4th century. What the Doctrine of Divine Accommodation means is that God is constantly adjusting his communication to us because of our humanness and our weakness and our fear and our fragility. So you can think about it like this. Imagine uh, like you go to the zoo with a two-year-old. How do you talk to the two-year-old at a zoo? You're like, hey, oh, look, it's the tigers. Do you see the tiger? Yeah, what does the tiger say? Rawr. Oh, you're so smart. <laughs> the smartest little boy in the world, right? That's how you talk to a two-year-old. Like you don't go to the zoo with a two-year-old and you're like, hey, did you know the tiger is an apex predator? That's not how you talk to a two-year-old. You, you accommodate the fact that they're two. You use words that they understand. The doctrine of the divine accommodation basically suggests this, that God knows he's talking to two-year-olds. We are the two-year-olds in this metaphor, right? That's basically what it says. God knows that he has to adjust his communication to us, and he willingly and lovingly does it because that's the sort of God that he is. What is a prophet? A prophet is a divine accommodation whereby God gets what he wants, which he eagerly wants to talk to us, but he does it in a way that respects our fear and our fragility as humans. And he so values his relationship with us that he's like, even though this is kind of dumb, it would be better if I could just talk to you. I will do it this way. Please listen. That's just the kind of God he is. So in the Old Testament, we see a whole bunch of prophets. Um, and then we see a, a period of time, like that is the time of the prophets, right? So there were prophets throughout the entire kingdom. But then you'll notice in the end of your Bible, there are 17 books that were all written by prophets. These books were all written around the same time in their history. Uh, we divide them into four categories. There are the four major prophets, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then there are 12 minor prophets. Now that distinction is not about importance. It's just about the length of the book. The major prophets wrote a lot. Uh, we're not going to study those this year, but the minor prophets were a little bit shorter books, and they were kind of these spiritual guides for the nation of Israel. And that 500-year period of time uh, happens right before 400 years of silence, and that silence is finally broken by God when he sends an angel to this young woman named Mary and announces the birth of Jesus. So you can take that 500 years of history and you can kind of divide it into three different categories. I've made a chart um, and we kind of have a, this is a version of the chart there because I'm a nerd and I love this stuff and I, I just do. So the three periods of time during this 500 years are defined by the ruling empire of the day. So uh, Israel was kind of a little bit small as countries go, but there was like this uh, world power that dominated history during these periods of time. The first one was the Assyrian period 
period. It was the Assyrians who like ruled all of the area that Israel was a part of. And there were these four prophets, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah. Also Isaiah was during that time. Uh, And then Assyria kind of faded and Babylon came onto the scene and it was the Babylonian empire that controlled everything in the world. And a lot happened during that time. Uh, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all that stuff is in the Babylonian time. And the Babylonians eventually haul off uh, part of the kingdom of Israel. And then after that was the Persian period. Um, And this is after the exile, they were hauled off and then they were allowed to come back. And so Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, also Nehemiah, Ezra, those are not prophets, but they wrote their books during that time. And so these are the three periods of time. There's one outlier in this, Joel. Joel is a prophet that is incredibly hard to date. Um, I don't mean like you, he doesn't want to date you. I mean like he's hard. <laughs> you probably figured that's not what I meant. Um, but let's, it's hard to know when actually he prophesied. He prophesied about something very specific that we'll talk about in a minute. But we don't really know when that happened in history. And so a lot of people speculate the bottom line is we just don't know. So over these, this 500-year period, uh, these prophets were the spiritual guides for the people of Israel. And really, their era started when the kingdom split. It was one kingdom, and it splits into two kingdoms. And that kicked off the era of the prophets. The story is relevant. Let me explain. So Moses dies. A little bit over 300 years after Moses dies, this prophet Samuel is the leader of the people of Israel, and Samuel's getting old, and this is a common problem. People get old. And so he puts his sons in charge, which is commonly what happens. Um, And you can read about it in 1 Samuel 8. The 12 leaders of the different tribes of Israel, the 12 elders, they get together and they're like, these guys aren't the same as Samuel. They're profiting off of their role. Uh, We don't want to suffer with this, so let's go talk to Samuel. And they go talk to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, here's the deal. You're getting old. You're about to die. Could you give us a king like all the other nations have? We don't have a king, but could you give us one? And then we wouldn't have to suffer because of your idiot sons? Is that okay? Samuel says, no, this is a horrible idea. This was not the dream of God. The dream of God was that he would be your king, remember? And they're like, yeah, but we really want to. Like, give us a king. And Samuel says, fine, I'll talk to God. And Samuel goes and he talks to God, and one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of the Old Testament happens in this conversation. Samuel goes to God, and God says to him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. I mean, do you hear the hurt in that? This is one of those moments I feel sorry for God. It's hard to be God. He's like, I just wanted, like, we could have this relationship. We could walk together. But again, you guys are like, we don't want that. We want somebody else to be in charge besides you, God. And God says, if I give you a king, you're going to regret it. And the elders of Israel say, but we really want one. And God says, okay, divine accommodation. And so there's three kings in a row, Saul, David, Solomon. They're a mixed bag. They had some good qualities and they had some really bad qualities. David was the best. Solomon did some stuff that really angered God. Uh, So Solomon started worshiping some of the idols of the nations around him. And God actually says to him, I'm so angry at you. I want to take the kingdom away from you, but I promised your father that I wouldn't. So instead, I'm going to take it away from your son. And you can read about this in 1 Kings 11 and 12. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king. 
And the elders, again, they get together and they're like, ugh, we got to talk to this guy. This is not going very well, this whole king thing. And so they get together and they talk to Rehoboam and they say, listen, your father, he was a very wealthy man, but he was wealthy because he raised taxes on us. Like the taxes are so high. Rehoboam, can you please lower the taxes? We're suffering here. And uh, he actually says this. This is in your Bible. Rehoboam says, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. And that probably means exactly what you think it means. Um, he, he actually increases the taxes on the people. Like he raises the taxes and the people revolt. And the leaders of these 10 tribes of Israel that are in the north, they go and they find another man. They find a man named Jeroboam. And I think it is purely coincidence that Jeroboam rhymes with Rehoboam. I don't think they were like, Rehoboam, who could we get? Someone close, similar. I don't think the rhyming is just incidental. So they find this guy Jeroboam and they make him their king. So Jeroboam is the king of the north. Rehoboam is the king of the south over the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And the south comes to be known as the nation of Judah. And the north comes to be known as the nation of Israel. Jeroboam has a problem. Uh, Jerusalem is in the south. That's where everybody worships God. He doesn't want people constantly leaving his country to worship God. And so what he does is he starts placing all around the northern kingdom, uh, and especially in his capital of Samaria, these different altars where you could worship God. And in the altars, he puts a golden calf, which should be familiar to you if you know the story of Exodus. And he says, here is your God, worship here. And that was a constant theme in the north. There was a lot of idol worship. And so as we read these prophets who speak to the northern kingdom, a lot of what they say is about idolatry and about saying, stop it. That's not what God wanted. In the southern kingdom, there's maybe a percentage less of idol worship, but there's a lot of injustice. And so the prophets are going to constantly be talking to the people about idol worship and injustice and idol worship and injustice. Meanwhile, just east of these two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the Assyrian Empire is growing, and eventually in 722, the Assyrian Empire wipes out the northern kingdom and captures Samaria. But before that happens, God sends four prophets. Here are the four that we're going to look at this fall. And my idea was, we'll just take three weeks for each of these. Their books are varying length. We don't want to get bogged down here. So we're going to take three weeks in the book of Jonah. Jonah uh, was a prophet to the northern kingdom, but God actually sent him to Assyria. Jonah didn't care for that very much. Uh, Then Amos. Amos was a wealthy man in the southern kingdom, and God sent him to the northern kingdom. And they're like, well, we don't care about what you think. Get out of here. Uh, They didn't like Amos at all. Hosea uh, was actually uh, sent to the people to talk about spiritual adultery. And they're like, well, we don't want to hear that. Get out of here. And that's kind of a theme with the prophets. Micah was sent to the southern kingdom, and he's a contemporary of Isaiah. After the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom, they tried to do the same to the south. But the good king Hezekiah, who listened to Micah, and Isaiah was able to hold them back. And so the southern kingdom survives the Assyrian period. As we look at these, I think we're going to be shocked at just how relevant they are to our day. I mean, these are people who were like the shepherds of the nation. And what they say again and again to people is, wake up. See the dream of God and the chance that you have to step into it. I like to say it this way, the prophets, they were like a bucket of cold water dumped on the sleeping Israel. And I think there'll be a little bit of that for us too. uh, I think they'll wake us up. Now, if you have a Bible, 
find your way to a prophet, any prophet, uh, what you'll notice immediately is a lot of the prophets are kind of indented. And so they look a little bit different than the rest of the text. Like it's, there's a weird indents there. One of the things we have to recognize about the prophets is they're writing in poetic language. This is not prose. It's not historical narrative. So the prophets are writing in a way that they want it to be evocative. They're using vivid imagery. They're trying to shock us with their language. They're attention-grabbing metaphors. There's all sorts of really interesting stuff in the prophets, but it's a different style of writing than, like, say, the Gospel of Luke. And so we will interpret it differently than we would interpret a historical narrative like Luke or a, an epistle like First Peter. Um, Stylistically, I was trying to think of what's a modern-day comparison to this. Um, I think this is a good modern-day comparison. I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, maybe not all of you listen to a lot of rap music. Um, but I think that actually is a pretty good comparison. Like some, of the, some rap music is done, but some rap music, like, it, like there's a poetry there and a purposefulness to it. There are guys like Kendrick Lamar. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his writing, Kendrick Lamar, because it's so evocative. It's so personal. That sometimes he writes from the voice of God or from the voice of a villain or from his own voice. And he's writing to not just tell you something, but to make you feel something about what he tells you. I'm mostly using that metaphor so my children will think I'm cool. Uh, but that's what the prophets are doing. That's what great musicians, great poets do is they have this quality of, I don't just want you to understand the truth, but I want your heart to feel the truth. The prophets use visions. Uh, they, sometimes they taunt the people, which is delightful. Uh, they lament. They grieve. They use irony. They use sarcasm. There's a lot of fascinating things that they do to communicate. What they're after is your heart. They want to move us. Generally, they say three things. They call people to repent. They warn people about coming judgments, and they promise people hope and salvation one day. That's kind of what they say. So that's what the prophets are. That's what they do. Uh, there, there's something really important, though, we need to keep in mind as we talk about them. And it goes to the question of why are there not prophets anymore, like the Old Testament prophets? We have to keep in mind what God said to Samuel. Remember what he said? He said, listen, Samuel, do what they say. It is not you that they have rejected, but it's me that they've rejected as their king. The heartbreak of God, God's plan to talk directly to these people that was constantly thwarted by us in our fear and in our fragility. We said, God, it's just too much. And so God says, well, okay, I'm going to create this thing called prophets as a provision for your weakness because I still want you to hear from me. One of the prophets is Joel. Joel's the prophet that we don't really know when he lived. Uh, Joel wrote about a specific event. He wrote about a plague of locusts that swept through the country and destroyed all of the crops. And so in the agricultural society, this is a pretty big deal. It's not like they had a lot of refrigeration and things like that. It was a devastating and horrific event for them. And so Joel steps into that moment and he says, I want to help you make sense of what is happening here and see God in the midst of this. Joel famously in chapter 2 says this uh, whole verse about how God one day, on this one day, is going to restore what the locusts have eaten. And that was like not a metaphor. He's talking about the actual locust. But then in that same chapter, he's talking about this day that God restores things 
And he says this amazing statement. On that day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We have to picture, or we have to put our heads in the minds of the original readers of this. How dramatic for people who, who saw the prophets as the means by which the God of the universe could get his voice heard. They saw the prophets as they're not like everyone else, that they are specially equipped to hear from God for the good of the world and to deliver a message of whatever it is God wanted to say to people. And so for Joel to say, hey, listen, there's coming a day where like all of the people will be prophets. Like all your sons and daughters will be able to hear from this God and deliver the message of his news. Finally, God's dream would be resurrected and would begin to happen where he is our king and we are his people and every woman and every man would be able to hear his voice and be able to speak it to the world around us. And Joel is suggesting one day God himself is gonna fulfill that dream. Now you fast forward a few hundred years, Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, uh, he's risen from the dead, and he says to his followers, hey, go back to Jerusalem and just hang out there for a bit, and that's what they do. And they're in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating uh, the Jewish festival of weeks. And in this moment, very similar to the language in uh, Exodus 19 and 20, God descends in the form of the Holy Spirit. And there's rushing wind and loud noise and there's fire and there's a lot of the same sort of things that accompanied God's descent onto Sinai. And everyone watching it heard this wind and they also heard this thing that, that like the people who, who were indwelt in that moment with the Holy Spirit, they started talking and saying things. And no matter what language you spoke, you heard them in your native language, what they were prophesying about. Like it landed in your heart in a way that you could understand, and it was all of the women and all of the men and all of the kids, I assume, too. Some people watching it were shocked and amazed. Some people watching it said, hey, I think they're drunk. Um, which, and I love, I just love that Luke, who wrote Acts, includes this, because they, they say that, and then Peter is like, this guy's, let me handle this. He's like, this is his moment to stand up and deliver the first sermon of the gospel community, right? The first sermon of the new covenant and the blood of Jesus to explain everything to everyone. Um, and I like to think that he was like, what should I, how should I start? Maybe a joke? Uh, and here's what the Bible says. I think it reads better this way. Maybe I'm wrong. But Peter gets up and he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> And if you look at his notes, it says, pause for laughter. He's like, I don't think it landed, you know. But then he goes on, and he says this. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2, this whole thing about all of the sons, all of the daughters being able to hear the voice of God and to prophesy the good news to the entire world. When we talk about Old Testament prophets, we know they don't exist anymore, at least not in the same way. Peter is telling us why. Why are the prophets all gone? Because God said, one day, 
We're not going to need them. Because God said, one day I'm going to give all of you access. God said through Joel, all of the women and all of the men, all of the daughters and all of the sons are going to be able to hear my voice and prophesy to the world around them the good news that I have. And through Peter in Acts chapter 2, God says, that day has come. And so here's the twist of all this Old Testament prophecy thing. The most shocking idea about this whole thing is who are the sons and daughters that Joel was talking about? It's us. It's you. It's me. It's everyone filled with the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus. And that thing that the prophets did in their, their day, this idea of hearing from God, hearing his dream for us as humanity, and then relaying it to the world. That has now become normative for everyone who trusts Jesus Christ. The most surprising twist of all the prophets is as special as Moses was and Samuel and Joel and all these guys. Why hasn't God sent another Moses? Why hasn't God sent another Joel? Because he sent you. Because he sent me. Because that was the plan all along. Not that there would be these special people who heard from God, but that every one of his people could hear from God and give the message to the world. He's filled you with his spirit. He's placed you in a community of faith in his family as a descendant of Abram, the family of God. Together we are his people and he is our only king and we are to listen to him for the good of the world. As we are studying these minor prophets this year, we are studying them because we are called to be like them. That's what we are, the sons and the daughters of these prophets. And what he said so many years ago on the mountain, it now applies to us just because we're the descendants of Abraham. It applies to everyone worldwide who has faith in Jesus. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, priests who hear my voice, a holy nation, we want to embrace our identity as his treasured possession and our identity as those who hear from God and deliver this message of good news, of the dream of our good God that even to this day is as appealing as it ever was back in Exodus 20. We need to learn from our fathers, the prophets, to do it because we have the same job to do that they did. And that is maybe a good moment to turn to the table. We're going to celebrate communion. Um, we're, you know, really in communion, what we are celebrating, when you think about it, is the ultimate divine accommodation. You have this God who's like, I want to talk to you people. Oh, I scare you. Well, let me introduce prophets. Uh, oh, that's not good enough. I'll send my son. And the ultimate divine accommodation is that the God of the universe didn't show up with thunder and lightning, but he showed up as Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, fully sufficient to save us and to restore to us this dream of our God who wants to walk with us. That's what he has done. That's what he is doing in us. And that's what he will do in us. All this talk, though, of the longing of God uh, brought to mind something that I often overlook in the story of communion. Um, the first communion, Jesus up in the upper room sitting with his disciples, um, 
Luke records this in Luke 22. There's this moment where Jesus gives this context to what they're about to observe together. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And you think about the eagerness of this God on Sinai and the eagerness of our Savior in the upper room just to be with, just to share with us. The people weren't ready in Exodus 20, so Jesus came. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to fill us so that every little thing, even eating and drinking, could be a moment where we glimpse the dream of this God who so desires us. We have cups at the tables. Uh, if you haven't gotten them, there's it's the cups with the wafer on the top. Don't forget that. Um, but you can take it, take it back to your seat. We're going to sing two songs of worship here. Um, you can take the elements at any point. Um, just you and God. I want us to take them, though, connected to this God who eagerly desires to be with us, who says, I've, I've been really wanting to spend this time with you. Jesus gave these instructions about the bread. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And about the, the cup, he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood, the restoration of this dream that was lost, which is poured out for you. As we come to the table, can we remember this God who is so eager to walk with you who accommodates your weakness but doesn't give up, that pursues and pursues and eventually filled you with the Spirit, that pours out His blood to make it possible, and that today is just so eager to share this moment with you. Come to the table.